Good evening, folks. It's time to get started. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. I'm Jack Cushwood Room now, and in this episode of Tuesday Night Rheumatology, we'll be doing highlights from Room Now Live 2022, the March 19th and 20th of this year. We had a great two-day seminar. This is one of the pods or sessions from that meeting. I want to thank our sponsor, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, for sponsoring this particular pod. Uh, they sponsored other pods at this meeting. Uh, is because of their sponsorship, we're allowed to bring this to you uh, free and live and repeatedly. So thank you, Janssen, for supporting education uh, and sharing good information with our great rheumatologists. In this session, um, I have to apologize two things. One, we're doing this a, an hour earlier um, than we usually do, and that's because I am currently at ULAR and in Copenhagen at an ungodly hour running this uh, particular broadcast. And then secondly, um, because of the hour, uh, I switched the topics. We were to have discussed psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Uh, that's what we've been promoting, but uh, we changed this to hot topics. It's a little bit shorter, a little bit more direct. I hope you don't mind. Um, either way, um, this session is great. The next session next Tuesday is going to be great. So in this session, it's hot topics. We've got two topics centered around pain and central pain. Uh, and the first topic is on uh, the transition from pediatric JIA to adult rheumatoid clinics. John Hausman from Boston is going to walk us through that. Um, I selected an excerpt where he was going to take a lot of questions uh, from the audience, and I think that's going to be helpful. And then in our final two sessions, we have Tahina Nioji from Boston talking about rethinking pain analgesia, and Dr. Philip Meese from Seattle talking about fatigue and central sensitization. I decided to run these all together. This is going to run about 35 minutes. Take notes. Be sure to ask questions. Use the Q&A um, part of the program of, of the webinar. Ask your questions. You can ask questions uh, if you're tuning in online, on, online and live on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, or um, LinkedIn, you can ask your question there and we'll answer it here as well at the end of the program. So let's take this down and get started with our speakers. Again, I think you're going to enjoy this. It's going to go straight through 35 minutes, but please do ask your questions uh, along the way. We'll be monitoring the, the Q&A box for um for your questions. Here we go. We're going to start off with Dr. John Hausman from Boston. So the sound is not playing. Brandy, let me try it. Just hold on, folks. Okay. We'll be right with you. Oh, boy. I cannot get into my Dropbox folder. Sorry Jack, for the hang up here, folks. Let me try this one more way, Jack. You got it here.
Okay, I think you're going to have to take over, Bradley, because this is not working. Okay. Oh, wait, I think I just found that out. So my patient is a 24-year-old young woman. She was diagnosed with JIA at age four and was referred to me as an adult rheumatologist to take over her care at age 24. Most of the patients that I see that are transitioning, I actually take them you know, from Boston Children's and I tell them, hey, next time I see you, I, I wanna see you across the street at the BI. But this is one of those patients that you may see that uh, they came from a different pediatric rheumatologist and, and so had no ties to me before seeing me. So the most important part of transitioning patients from pediatric to adult rheumatologist is to actually make the transition. And that sounds easy, but in fact, it's not so easy. 52%, that's the number of pediatric patients who are referred to adult rheumatologists who actually never make it there after two years. So it's a huge problem. And we know that this comes at a time in, in life when young adults are particularly vulnerable. So the most important thing is to actually get the patient to see you in adult rheumatology. So how can that be improved? So again, what are the steps for successful transition? Certainly the most important, make the transition. Figure out where they came from, what's their underlying disease category. Think about active versus chronic damage. Um, assess for chronic pain syndromes and depression. Here's some useful resources. Um, and uh, thank you very much for your attention. John, we have a bunch of questions. Um, uh, one, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, we have time for a few questions. Sorry. Good, good jump. I give him a six. Um, so, um, I have to get my, a few questions about TMJ. How do you manage TMJ in, um, so one would be TMJ, I guess, pain issues, and what about the kids with micrognathia? What should the adult rheumatologist be thinking about there? Wow, complex question. So the, fortunately, the American College of Rheumatology just came out with guidelines about how to manage TMJ. Uh, I guess the bottom line is screen for it. As a pediatric rheumatologist, this is a joint that we often um, uh, check for. I remember as a, as a fellow, you know, we have to measure intra-incisor distance and have to see whether the jaw is symmetric. And, and one of my attendings would, would get on my case if I ever didn't uh, examine the jaw. So, so the most important thing is to try to, you know, detect it and prevent it from happening. Um, you know, at, at Children's, we refer to OOMFS very early. We get MRIs if there's a question whether or not the jaw has been affected. If it's been affected, you know, uh, certainly we do more aggressive treatment like TNF inhibitors uh, and if there's been damage already then the point would be to work with our OMFS sometimes they need jaw reconstruction surgery as adults OMFS means oral maxillofacial right, just, surgery just to be sure um, uh, <laughs> the um, do you have a preferred drug for uveitis yeah, so I'm not an ophthalmologist, but drugs that have been shown to be useful is certainly methotrexate uh, and then TNF inhibitors like adalimumab. Okay. Is it, what's the ideal age that the transition process should start? Should start, you know, as a, as a teenager, you know, 12, 12 years old or 13 years old, the pediatric rheumatologist should really be encouraging their patients to, you know, answer questions. It's so frustrating when you get into a room, the child is 17, and you ask the child, how are you feeling? And mom answers for them, right? That should not happen. Uh, so already as, as children, they should, they should learn to communicate directly with their doctors and, and you know, take care of their medicines and speak with their doctors about what medications uh, they're taking and how they're feeling. You know, th there's questions about when should they actually transition to adult medicine. That depends a lot on, on your institution, on their insurance companies. 
At Children's, we actually hold on to them until about after college because college is, you know, things are up in the air and they may go to college in, in Wisconsin and then, you know, come back uh, to, to Boston um, afterwards. So, so we, we hold on to them. Uh, and once, you know, they've finished college, we, we transition them. But I, I realize that, that in other places, sort of age 18 is when the transition happens. Uh, so those kids need to be even more prepared uh, to do that process. Uh, the kids who come to us who have not previously had uveitis, uh, now they're adult JIAs, um, and, and we're going to manage them, should we be sending them to ophthalmology as you have? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I presented some data that if they haven't had uveitis, um, you know, after five or seven years of their JIA, it is very unlikely that they will develop uveitis, uveitis as adults. So I typically do not send, uh, send them regularly. Is there any special considerations for those who, um, kids who have hypermobility who end up in our clinics and how we should be managing those? The, the, you know, hypermobility is a, is a whole different beast. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to, to learn more about, you know, the, these patients are at increased risk of developing chronic pain syndromes, uh, migraines, POTS, right, IBS. Uh, so it's a whole different talk. Uh, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I, I will defer. It's a, a, and um, one, uh, someone online said, you know, some of my adult patients need parenting. Um, as one who deals with kids and parenting, um, is that... Does that translate at all to your adult practice? Do you think you're better at um, coaching and parenting your adult patients? Or what, what, what skills could you take forward? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think, you know, one of the benefits of being sort of dual certified and seeing the experience in children's is sort of the ability to work with families and to sort of meet them where they are. And I certainly carry that forward. I, you know, often in my young adults, I'm treating them a lot, you know, parenting them and, and treating them as children because they haven't yet developed the skills to sort of self-manage their care. And, and so it's, 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 a, it's an educational process, you know, every visit. Yes, for all of us. So, John, thanks so much. This is great. Thanks. And is uh, a reflection of central sensitization. So when a stimulus is applied, an action potential occurs and a certain level of pain can be elicited. For normal people, this would go back down to normal, and each time you apply the same stimulus, you get the same pain intensity. For someone with temporal summation, these kind of build up on each other, and the pain intensity increases over time. So we did this study in the MOST cohort again, and we used these punctate probes, again, a mechanical input, and again, a normal response is the same amount of pain which each stimulus Whereas if someone is um, sensitized, they will have temporal summation, meaning their pain will increase over time. And this summarizes a number of different studies that we did in this cohort. First, we were surprised that radiographic knee osteoarthritis was not associated with temporal summation. So radiographic pathology was not driving temporal summation. But instead, we found that symptomatic knee OA and frequent knee pain started to have some associations and the strongest associations at the knee and the wrist were with knee pain severity. So there's something about temporal summation and pain severity, but not radiographic OA. But we know that radiographs don't uh, pick up all of the different features in osteoarthritis. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at the MRIs that we had in this cohort. We looked at mechanical lesions, which are bone marrow lesions, and inflammatory lesions, such as synovitis and effusion. And what we found was that bone marrow lesions were not associated with sensitization, but inflammatory lesions were. So this is starting to put together a picture of inflammation and pain and sensitization. Now, this is Lisa Carlesa, one of my former mentees, we were interested in identifying what factors may be inherent in an individual that predisposes them to developing pain and persistent pain. So we again looked at the, in the most cohort and identified people who were free of persistent knee pain at baseline. And then we took an agnostic approach, um, looking at a number of different factors that we think are important for pain, the pain experience. And um, we performed a latent class analysis. We identified four different clusters. 
What was interesting is that widespread pain, pain catastrophizing, depressive symptoms, and poor sleep, all of which contribute to the pain experience, did not differentiate between these clusters. Instead, the clusters differentiated on the degree of sensitization by pressure pain threshold or temporal summation. We then looked at these people who were free of persistent knee pain at baseline to see which of these clusters had the greatest risk of developing persistent pain two years later. And we found that those that were most sensitized by pressure pain threshold had a two-fold increased risk of developing persistent pain two years later. So this has tremendous implications for understanding the transition from acute to chronic pain in osteoarthritis and in many other diseases. And in fact, was identified by an NIH pain symposium that year as being one of the most important insights about our understanding of this transition from acute to chronic pain. Um, so I wanted to um, also share with you some insights we have on sensitization in hand osteoarthritis. And this is work in conjunction with Pernille Steen-Peterson and um, her mentor, Ida Haugen, with whom I've had a long-standing collaboration. They implemented these uh, our protocols from the MOST study in the Norhand cohort. And similar to what we found in osteoarthritis, knee osteoarthritis, increased sensitization is associated with increased pain and hand away. And then looking at radiographs and um, ultrasound, we found that pressure pain threshold was associated with um, calgary lorentz grade and signs of inflammation. And temporal summation was associated with erosive hand away, again, associated with inflammation. So here again is a link between inflammation, sensitization, and pain. And so speaking of inflammation and pain, rheumatoid arthritis is our prototypical inflammatory arthritis. We know that the cardinal signs of inflammation are rubor, calor, tumor, and dolor. So is the pain in rheumatoid arthritis solely due to inflammation? We know that cytokines and many of the inflammatory mediators can interact with nociceptors and contribute to the pain experience. So if I were there in person, this would be our second polling question. Does pain in rheumatoid arthritis primarily reflect inflammation? Well, the answer is mixed. So I don't expect you to um, get all the details here, so I'll just walk you through this. This is a study by Georg Schecht's group from over 10 years ago now, where they took a small group of uh, people with rheumatoid arthritis, about 14 patients, um, who were given infliximab. And what they found is that their VAS pain decreased before swollen joint count, tender joint count, and DAS28. In fact, their pain decreased on day one. Um, whereas swollen joint, tender joint, DAS28, it took um, a few weeks before those parameters decreased. In contrast, signals in the brain in pain areas also decreased by day one, coinciding with a decrease in their VAS pain. So they concluded that the TNF inhibitor uh, infliximab affects the CNS activity before systemic anti-inflammatory effects. So certainly some of the pain can be, uh, in rheumatoid arthritis, can be ascribed to inflammation. However, we know that that is not the full picture. And this has important therapeutic implications because we obviously use a treat-to-target strategy in managing rheumatoid arthritis, and disease activity drives our treatment decisions. So this assumes that pain is solely related to RA pathology. But as you know, there is this concept of fibromyalgianess in rheumatoid arthritis, and certainly fibromyalgia can be comorbid in rheumatoid arthritis. So this has important implications for when we're pushing a treat-to-target approach, escalating immunosuppressive therapy, when some of that pain may not be solely due to disease pathology and inflammation. Um, and I imagine Dr. Mies may be addressing some of these issues. 
So I wanted to share with you some work that I've had the pleasure of doing with Dr. Yvonne Lee, who's now at Northwestern, which she started when she was uh, still in Boston, and her mentee, um, Andrew Heisler. So we used some of the same protocols that I've already shared with you, pressure pain threshold and temporal summation. And we found that those who have more sensitization had greater pain severity, even after accounting for inflammatory measures. So lower pressure pain threshold and higher temporal summation, both indicating more sensitization, had greater pain ratings. In addition, we looked at pain sensitization and disease activity. And we found that measures of pain sensitization were associated with tender joint count and patient global, um, as well as the uh, overall disease activity indices, driven primarily, not surprisingly, by tender joint count and patient global. We also looked at sensitization um, measures and, and the impact on response to treatment in rheumatoid arthritis. We found that sensitization was associated with lower rates of good ULAR response. So the orange bars indicate those that have the most sensitization by different measures, and they had a lower likelihood or lower prevalence of having a good response. And if you had more than one type of um, sensitization measure, you had a, the lowest uh, prevalence of having a good ULAR response. Um, and so I don't have any studies to show you of gout, but I would like to just raise this um, as, a, as a thought um, as we are nearing the end here, that the prototypical rheumatic disease that exhibits sensitization is gout. If you think about it, this is a disease where during flares, the joint is exquisitely tender, even beyond the joints, such as the skin, you know, the classic description of not even being able to have the bed sheet touch the skin. So that is a prime example of sensitization, and yet it resolves spontaneously. So if we could harness our understanding of how gout becomes so sensitized, uh, you know, joints with gout flares become so sensitized, and then spontaneously resolve, we would have new avenues for addressing pain if we could um, understand those pathways and develop targets. So what's new for managing pain? Well, I think there's a lot going on that we as rheumatologists will need to come up to uh, speed on. I think eventually we as rheumatologists are going to have to think beyond the joint and think about what's happening at the peripheral nociceptors coming up to the dorsal root ganglion, the spinal cord, and the brain. There are already some treatments that we use that affect these pathways, such as NSAIDs, um, opioids, um, uh, SNRIs. But these are usually not in the uh, prime purview of, of rheumatologists. So there are a number of emerging pain targets, for example, at the periphery um, on the um, peripheral nociceptor side of things. Nerve growth factor has obviously been um, a, one of the most um, uh, important uh, discoveries um, with promise for osteoarthritis um, in particular. And then TRIP-V1 I highlight here because it was recently in the news, if you will remember, um, that Dr. David Julius received the Nobel Prize for discovering the TRIP-V1 receptor. And we use capsaicin, which um, binds TRIP-V1 as a topical treatment in osteoarthritis. CGRP has not moved forward for osteoarthritis, but is licensed as an anti-migraine agent and anecdotally, some of my patients have told me that their MSK pain has improved after they get, got started on it with, uh, for their migraines. Um, and there are a number of other receptors that are being developed and tested. Um, and they're in, um, in rheumatic diseases with the focus primarily in osteoarthritis. A number are in trials for osteoarthritis. I won't go into all of these, but unfortunately, our most promising one, NGF, has had um, a, a, has hit a snag in that Lilly and Pfizer have stopped development of tenezumab. Um, and so it's unclear where this is going to go. Um, and that this is a topic for another talk about the joint safety um, concerns about NGF. But in any case, I want to just highlight what are the consequences of, um, you know, being... Um, not being careful enough with managing pain. 
So we know that nociceptive pain is needed to prevent harm. And we know what happens when you have an insensate joint. You can get a Charcot joint. So first, we want to make sure that patients understand that zero pain is not the goal because physiologic pain is needed for joint protection. Instead, we're trying to manage their pain so that they can have good function and good quality of life. On the other hand, there are unintended consequences of not having adequate pain management options. And this is one of my uh, former mentees, Andrew Stokes. We used NHANES data and looked at prescription medications for people with arthritis um, from 1991 to 2015. We looked at prescription opioids and prescription non-narcotic analgesics, which is primarily NSAIDs and COX-2 inhibitors. And you can see that after a certain point in time, there was a steep marked drop in the prescription of NSAIDs and COX-2 inhibitors coinciding with an increase in opioids. And that occurred around 2004, where for those of you who've been in medicine long enough, you'll recognize that was when Biox came off the market. So as the risks of COX-2 inhibitors and NSAIDs Increase, or were increasingly recognized, their prescription decreased, but people still have pain and they still need their pain managed, and that is when we saw an increase in prescription of opioids. So there are unintended consequences of not having adequate pain management options for our patients. So in summary, pain is multifactorial in rheumatic diseases. We need to consider and manage other contributors to pain, such as sleep, depressive symptoms, coping skills, etc. We need to be, have realistic goals about symptoms and functions. Zero pain is not the goal. And particularly for diseases like osteoarthritis, we need disease modifying agents and importantly, for all of our diseases, more pain management options because we do need a multimodal approach. And ideally, we need a mechanism-based approach to management. We need to be able to phenotype what is contributing to their symptoms to better target their SSS for the uh, Corevitas registry. And then this is a table uh, which speaks to the frequency with which fibromyalgia diagnosed by various means, mostly many of these studies, it was the old 1990 criteria. Uh, and it basically says wherever you look within the rheumatic diseases and even beyond the rheumatic diseases, if you go to any chronic inflammatory disease like inflammatory bowel uh, disease, or if you go to chronic pain conditions uh, uh, such as uh, chronic headache problems, the, you will find a certain degree of, of fibromyalgia being present or central sensitization, ranging somewhere between 10-15% on the low end which is about double what the natural frequency of fibromyalgia is in the population, up to about 35 to 40 percent, uh, depending upon the way in which it's ascertained in, in, the, in the particular study. So it's there. It's part of our everyday practice, no matter what. Even if you've told your receptionist no fibromyalgia patients, um, ain't going to happen because you're going to have fibromyalgia in your practice no matter what, and so it's important to be able to ascertain it and manage it. So what I'm going to show you next is a, a, a series of slides that walk through different rheumatic conditions and, and demonstrate what the impact of having concomitant fibromyalgia is with along with the root disease that we're talking about. So here we have rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, this is a, a series uh, from Tom's et al. And it shows us that here, here we have a group of 25 patients with rheumatoid arthritis and fibromyalgia concomitantly. And here's a group of RA patients who, who don't, are not considered to have fibromyalgia. And what you see is that uh, uh, in, in this cross-sectional analysis, all of these uh, these disease activity measures that include patient-reported outcomes like patient pain, tender joint count, et cetera, they're all about at least twice as severe uh, in the patients with fibro as compared to the uh, ones without fibro. Uh, and so that's going, what if, what if you walk in the room with this group of patients and don't take this into account, 
you're going to be churning through moving from one, two, three, four TNF inhibitors to an IL-6 inhibitor to JAK inhibitors, um, when in fact their disease activity may be very well controlled. And so the proper approach would be not to churn through immunomodulatories, but instead to be thinking about what's the multimodal approach to treating pain sensitization that we can do. Uh, here is a, uh, a study from the Brass Registry uh, at the Brigham. Uh, same uh, deal where uh, 25 patients RA plus FM versus RA alone. And you see uh, in terms of the composite measures that include patient reported outcomes, uh, tender joint count, DAS28, everything is worse. But then when you come to more objective blood test measures, for example, CRP or the vector score, they uh, are not influenced by the background presence of fibromyalgia. So this is just a comment about making sure you look at objective markers such as swollen joint count CRP as well as the composite measures. Here uh, is a study that was done in Tel Aviv in patients with psoriatic arthritis, 17.8% of whom uh, in this cohort were considered to have concomitant fibromyalgia, and exactly the same thing uh, is noted, where the composite measures with subjective elements are all twice as severe in the group with uh, fibromyalgia. Uh, but if you look at the skin score, for example, or the CRP, which are more objective, or the swollen joint count, they're closer to each other. It's not influenced by background fibro. And importantly, uh, the patient group uh, that had concomitant fibromyalgia could not get into a state of minimal disease activity. So we were, if you were trying to treat to the target of minimal disease activity, which has numerous elements in it, including patient pain, for example, you just can't get there uh, with concomitant fibro. And so if you're trying to, again, the same phenomenon, if you're cycling through immunomodulatories, uh, trying to get to a state of MBA, eh, you're barking up the wrong tree here. Uh, this is a study that uh, was done in Denmark, uh, and uh, the, uh, very interesting, took 69 patients who were initiating either methotrexate or a biologic, uh, and they had all kinds of clinical evaluations, including ultrasound of entheses and the joints and so forth. Uh, and they used also the widespread pain index uh, and found that at baseline, a third of the patients had evidence of elevated widespread pain index, uh, which is, I think, consistent with what we might anticipate in such a cohort. Uh, and uh, the patients had, all at baseline had worse uh, patient-reported outcome measures. Uh, and at four months, uh, the patients with widespread pain could not achieve minimal disease activity, whereas a fifth of the patients who did not have concomitant central sensitization uh, could. And ultrasound was completely, there was no evidence of um, uh, inflammation by ultrasound in those uh, patients with widespread pain who had tender joints or entheses. Moving to ankylosing spondylitis, uh, this is a study from southern Brazil, uh, same deal that we just were talking about. Again, a portion of patients who had concomitant FM and then looking at composite measures, uh, they were all worse in the group of patients with FM. Here's another study with ankylosing spondylitis from Marina McGray in Cleveland. Uh, and again, the same deal where composite measures are all worse in the patients with fibromyalgia, uh, of which there were 27 uh, in, uh, among 62 patients versus 35 uh, who did not have it among 62 patients. Interestingly, and for reasons I cannot explain, in this particular study, the SED rate and CRP were also worse. It's the only one study that I've seen where that was the case. And then lastly, here is a group of patients in France 
uh, with uh, axial spondyloarthritis being initiated on TNF inhibitor therapy, 519 patients, big study. Uh, and they applied the first questionnaire and found that a third of patients at baseline qualified for having fibromyalgia. And then the outcome uh, was that the ASAS 20 and 40 results were significantly better in patients that did not have fibromyalgia. And if we look at achievement of low disease, uh, low disease activity or remission, as uh, defined by ASDAS, we find significantly more patients uh, who did not have uh, uh, fibromyalgia achieving these thresholds compared to those that, who did. And one of the things that when, when Maxime Dugados was showing me these results uh, at a meeting a few years, a couple of years ago, one of the things he pointed out was this uh, difference that, that was uh, uh, occurred between baseline in which 31% of the patients answered positively on the first questionnaire but at three months, 18% did, suggesting some modulability of the uh, patient's fibromyalgia-ness from baseline to three months of treatment. And so I understand that uh, the, all of the TNF agents are now in front of the FDA for an approval for the treatment of fibromyalgia. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're, we're happy about that, aren't we? Sorry, that was a joke, I guess you. So um, I'm, I'm, uh, this is one uh, little tidbit that I, that I think is interesting that I want to just bring to your attention. Tweena didn't um, mention it, but it's something that's, uh, that's a vein of research in, in this literature that, that she and I are talking about. And that is that there are studies that show that there's diminution in certain areas of the, of, of the brain in terms of gray matter. So with these chronic pain states and people who are showing evidence of centralization by various techniques, that there is a correlation with structural change in the brain, at least as assessed by MRI scan. This is a fascinating study in which patients who had chronically painful hip OA showed diminution in gray matter consistent with what had been seen in the literature for chronic back pain patients, fibromyalgia patients, et cetera. They had their hips replaced, and then after the hip replacement was done, their gray matter changes reverted back toward normal. Uh, finally, I want to mention uh, this, this technique called mediation analysis, which we're st now starting to apply in clinical trials. And if you recall, Tawina mentioned that there's some data that shows us that patients respond, in, uh, like in this case with a JAK inhibitor, tovacitinib, really quickly in their pain responses uh, with very, very shortly after initiating therapy in a trial. Uh, as compared to longer to, uh, uh, for improvement of inflammation markers. So the question arises, might there be a direct effect of a JAK inhibitor in this case on uh, pain in the central nervous system as opposed to only working through reduction of, of the uh, tender and swollen joint uh, kind of changes? So this is uh, using a technique, a statistical technique known as mediation analysis. And what was uh, uh, shown with all of this uh, approach was that uh, three quarters of the pain relief was due to a direct effect of tofacitinib on pain reduction, as opposed to or distinct from uh, changes in CRP or changes in swollen joint count. This work has uh, gone on now to be, uh, uh, is in the process of being published, and there are some additional analyses added to it, including about enthesitis and, and itch. And it's interesting that itch in, in psoriatic arthritis is contributing. Now, the world of uh, the issue of fatigue has very parallel and similar uh, types of findings. We are knowing that there's a, a prominent central nervous system uh, effect of chronic disease and chronic pain on 
fatigue symptomatology. We also know that uh, sleep disturbance, depression, et cetera, uh, contributes to it. Uh, but it hasn't been, up until recently, it hasn't always been measured in clinical trials. Uh, and thanks to a group of patients that were involved with OMERACT in 2002, this ultimately led to fatigue being included in the rheumatoid arthritis core set in 2006. Uh, and more recently, uh, we're seeing the FDA uh, finally recognizing that this is an important issue for patients and starting to uh, uh, prove some of uh, the medications that we're using as immunomodulatories to improve uh, fatigue. Um, there are many uh, reasons for fatigue, which I've listed here, and they again parallel what we have just been talking about in pain, uh, including sleep, depression, uh, uh, problems with physical activity and fitness, but importantly, immunobiologic changes in the central nervous system. Anemia may contribute, obesity has been found to contribute to fatigue, and then medications. For example, studies in lupus, which show that chronic glucocorticoid use contributes to fatigue. These are some of the measures that are used in clinical trials. Uh, the FACET is one that has uh, been favored in recent rheumatoid as well as uh, uh, PSA trials, uh, for example. Uh, and it was, uh, uh, it's this measure that the FDA is looking favorably on uh, for uh, uh, getting an indication and in treating fatigue. Many of these, except for the VAS scale, acknowledge the fact that fatigue is multifactorial. Uh, and so get at that by having a number of different questionnaires. In the last couple of slides, I'm going to show you data from a, a single uh, set of uh, trials. This is the Guzelcomab phase three program uh, in which uh, the uh, fatigue was measured using the FACET score. Uh, and one of the important factors is that about a third of the fatigue by this uh, principal component analysis uh, was uh, found to be a direct CNS uh, phenomenon uh, related to disease. And this, uh, to look at this, these graphs, what you, uh, your, this first graph is showing us improvement of fatigue uh, with both of the guzelcomab dose arms uh, in this case, but also the placebo arm. So it's a little bit more difficult to distinguish from placebo. This was statistically significant, but as you can see, a big placebo effect. And then this was sustained over time. And, and this led to the FDA saying, okay, we finally get it. Um, even though there have been many studies with other drugs that have shown improvement in fatigue, we're gonna finally allow you to have this as part of your indication. And then uh, using a mediation analysis with this symptom, fatigue, uh, assessing the direct effect of the treatment versus indirect effects through, tre uh, through treatment of inflammation signs such as CRP, uh, ACR20, achievement of MDA, et cetera. The way to, uh, this, this is all uh, showing the direct effect of the drug on uh, the uh, diminution of fatigue. Uh, and the way this is read is that, for example, here uh, in uh, this particular trial, MDA is contributing about a quarter, whereas the direct effect of the drug is three, uh, contributing three quarters. So I think uh, this is opening our eyes uh, to the phenomenon that our immunomodulatory drugs are doing more than just simply reducing inflammation at a site of a joint or skin, but also doing other things in the body uh, that have to do with neuroimmunology. So just to um, summarize, I think uh, in this uh, brief time, uh, uh, Tuina and I have uh, emphasized the importance of pain as well as fatigue as key issues for our patients with uh, IMIDs. Uh, the uh, etiology for these symptoms is multifactorial, including central sensitization, as well as genetic and psychosocial factors, depression and anxiety contributing to it. Uh, it's important, uh, in, this is true for both pain and fatigue. Uh, 
the phenomenon of central sensitization uh, significantly amplifies these symptoms, and we need to take this into account when we're uh, assessing our patients uh, and looking for objective markers of improvement versus subjective uh, residual effects on pain and fatigue so that we don't have, keep going through this churning uh, of uh, switching immunomodulatory medicines, but turn to looking toward treatments, either pharmacologic treatments that are not narcotic uh, or uh, treatments that are um, uh, physical therapy, uh, meditation approaches, et cetera, uh, to try to uh, reduce these phenomenon. So with that, I'll stop and see if there are any questions. Okay, thank you, Philip and Tahina and John. Um, we can take that down and um, uh, open this up for any questions that you might have. Um, again, I think that there are a lot of interesting things being presented, especially in the last two uh, presentations regarding um, uh, what drives central sensitization, um, what similarly drives fatigue, and that it's not just all fibromyalgia, um, that there is an inflammation contributor here and that control of inflammation does um, seem to have more of a direct than rather than indirect effect on those outcomes. I, as you may have noticed in the last few ACR and ULAR meetings, there have been a number of different reports about what happens uh, in patients who achieve remission and how many of them still have residual non-inflammatory pain, suggesting that um, there's that this is even more complex, even then when you are using effective interventions that control inflammation, drop set rate CRP, lead to remission-like numbers that people still have uncontrolled pain um, and uncontrolled fatigue. Uh, and luckily it's, it's a minority. But nonetheless, it still is something that I think concerns all of us. So um, there were a few uh, questions that might be um, worth reviewing here that um, might not have been answered already. Uh, so let's take a look at some of those. Um, uh, I, I like the question that I gave to John Houseman about what's the ideal time to transition patients from juvenile to the adult rheumatology clinic. And he said, it really could start at age 12, but certainly should be complete by age 18. It's not uncommon age 16. I think in talking to many pediatric rheumatologists, it's probably 16, but the number gets modified when the pediatric patient either has a criminal record or is taller than the pediatrician or is pregnant. Those are other um, red flag uh, referrals to the adult rheumatologist. So good luck if you're an adult rheumatologist. Um, I think the issue of what is preferred with uveitis, I, I agree with what John said, TNF inhibitors are, are not only approved for it, but are uh, the antibody-based um, TNF inhibitors are the best. I agree with John that one's the, when the kid with JIA who has not had uh, eye problems um, is referred to you as an adult, they do not need to be followed by ophthalmology anymore. When they're um, at 18 or above, they're still 16. They still may need to be seen, be seen annually. There was a question about how do you continue biologics in Stills disease, not something discussed. We talking, the question here was about whether or not um, if you're using an IL-1 inhibitor, for instance, how long would you continue it? And the answer is no one really knows. Um, you should tell the patient that active systemic inflammatory still disease is going to last for eight months to eight years, and that we um, control that with biologics and other drugs. And that when the patient shows me at least um, six months, but I really wanna see a year of remission, we can talk about weaning off that therapy. The good news is that with Stills disease, if they still need it, you can be totally suppressed by pharmacology uh, and then take away the drugs and boom, their Stills manifestations come back. If they're on anakinra, it comes back within three, three days. If they're on canakinumab, they can come back within two weeks of being off those drugs. Um, uh, so a question for clarification was, 
Is the synovial fluid more important to pain than bone marrow edema? Yes. Bone marrow edema is not responsible for the pain in most of these patients, and that it is effusion and inflammation. And that could be inflammation as one mediator and effusion through inflammation and or stretch of the capsule as a mediator of, 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 infl of pain. Um, and that um, maybe, yes, if you do arthrocentesis, that may make a significant short-term uh, difference. Um, are some DMARGs better than others in the control of chronic widespread pain or fibromyalgia in rheumatic diseases, inflammatory rheumatic diseases? I'm not aware of one uh, or, uh, that does that, because mainly because there are no head-to-head -head trials here. And it doesn't seem that um, anyone stands out in my mind. Um, and not certain, and Philip did not certainly present any data that was going to support one drug um, over another for that particular problem. So uh, if there are no further questions, I want to thank um, uh, all of you for attending. We want to thank our speakers for fabulous presentations. We want to thank Jansen for sponsoring education here at, at Room Now and Room Now Live next week in our last in this series of the Room Now Live replays. We'll be doing psoriasis for the, the rheumatologist. And we have presentations by three dermatologists and one rheumatologist, Joe Marola is both a rheumatologist and, uh, and this is a fabulous session. I must say, I put together the videos and they look really, really good. I think you're going to enjoy that. And we'll take your questions there. Um, starting tomorrow, Wednesday, June 1st, um, ULAR begins and Room Now's coverage of ULAR will begin. You'll be getting your email at a, late in the afternoon, about four or five o'clock every day. Um, and so the day one report will be live in real time. You'll get a day one report from our faculty in Europe doing, uh, and some of them will be doing this virtually, covering the meeting. So you'll be getting a day one, day two, day three, day four report Wednesday through Saturday. Look for a Saturday email on a ULAR report. You can follow us on Twitter. Um, and then the last thing you should know, we'll be doing daily um, recaps with the faculty where a few faculty and I will get together each day at 12 noon um, Dallas time, one o'clock Eastern time. And we're gonna live stream our uh, little session, our 15 minute session recap with the faculty that'll be saved uh, and, and it'll be live streamed on YouTube, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook and Twitter, um, maybe even on our website, but you'll be seeing, it'll also get recorded and put on the, e uh, on the website and in the email. But if you wanna watch it live every day, 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon uh, Central, um, and you figure it out for the Pacific. And uh, it's going to be a 15-minute meeting uh, where we're going to go over the highlights of the day. So I hope you're going to enjoy that. So uh, that's it, folks. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Tuesday Night Rheumatology. We'll see you next week. Sleep well. Bye-bye.